Amen. Amen. In the verse 1 of Isaiah 42, we have these words, Behold my servant. Behold my servant. The Scriptures teach us that he that winneth souls is wise. And in those words, we get a sense of the, the value of the soul. The greatest work that we can be engaged in and involved in is soul winning. Yes, it is so needful and so important that we have people who rescue others from danger, from difficult situations, that we have medical people who are able to heal and to apply their skills for the saving of the body. And all that is so important and so wonderful. And we are so indebted to the life savers in society. But the greatest work is saving souls. Because the body, as we know, is a dying thing. The body may be saved, but only temporarily. Life may be prolonged, but just for a short while, and then life will be gone. But the soul is eternal, and we think of the value of a soul and the preciousness of a soul. We think of the self-awareness and the self-consciousness of the soul throughout all of God's eternity. In one of two places, in heaven, enjoying celestial bliss forever, or hell, lost, damned, and doomed. It's a solemn thing, and it is a vision that we must pray that God would bring into our hearts and minds the need to be soul winners, that we might be useful in this good and noble and great work. It is the great purpose of the church to be soul winning. And it is God's plan and God's purpose for us that we would be signposts pointing men and women to the Lamb of God. But how can we be soul winners? How, we, how can we be more useful in this work and labor? What qualities do we require? These are very important questions, and they can be perplexing questions, and at times discouraging questions, because we can feel ourselves to be a failure in this work of soul winning, especially in these days of spiritual drought, when it seems that, to use another metaphor, so few fish are caught in the net. If we are to become soul winners, well, we need to study and examine the model soul winner. And who is the model soul winner? Is it St. Peter? Well, he was a great soul winner. He won thousands of souls for Jesus Christ. Is it the Apostle Paul? What an amazing soul winner he was, planting churches from city to city, ever being faithful, spending and being spent, he said, for the cause of the gospel. Yes, he was a great soul winner. In the history of the church, what model soul winners 
can we point to? We think of Whitfield, the work that he did on both sides of the Atlantic. We think of Wesley, the work that he did throughout the British Isles. We think of Spurgeon, the thousands who heard him and who were one to Christ, not only through his preaching ministry, but through his writing ministry as well. All of these and many others were great soul winners, soul winners that we feel so humbled as we think of their work and of their ministry, but yet they were not the greatest soul winners. The one who is the ultimate example in this work of soul winning is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. The secret to being a winner of souls is to have a Christ-like spirit. And how can we have that Christ-like spirit? It is praying as we spoke about this morning that the glory of God would be revealed in our hearts, that we would see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, and that we would bring all of our work and all of our labor, and we would bring it up before Him and do it all in the light of His countenance, and that we would serve Him with our all and endeavor to be like Him. And it is really as we know the fullness of the Spirit God working upon us, showing Christ, revealing Christ, that we will be like Him in this good work. This passage, Isaiah 42, is all about Christ. Behold my servant. He is the servant. He came not to be served, but to serve, and to give His life, we are told, a ransom for many. Behold my servant. This work of soul winning is a service, a service for the Lord. If you turn with me over to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 12, please. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 12. We know that this passage refers to Christ because the New Testament tells us clearly that it refers to Christ. Matthew chapter 12, the verse 17. That it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah, or Isaiah the prophet, saying, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall show judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not strive nor cry, neither shall any man hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed shall he not break, and smoking flax shall he not quench, till he send forth judgment unto victory, and in his name shall the Gentiles trust. So as we consider some aspects of Christ's ministry, and what he has to teach us, and how he challenges us, and how he encourages us, as we think of this tonight, let us pray that the Lord would Bring us into His Spirit as He prepares our hearts for this mission. Let us first of all think about His authorization. The model soul winner was authorized. Behold my servant. But why did the servant come? He came for the Gentiles in verse 1 for the saving of the Gentiles. He came to speak. He came to 
bring a word, a word that would be as cold waters upon the lips of a parched man in the desert. He came to heal up the bruised reed. He came in order that the smoking flax would not be quenched. He came in verse 7 to open blind eyes and to bring the prisoners out of prison. This is what he came to do. He came to do a new thing. We read in verse 9 about the new things that would be spoken of. He came for the world. In verse 10, sing unto the Lord a new song and his praise from the end of the earth, ye that go down to the sea and all that is therein, the isles and the inhabitants thereof. He came for those by the seashore, for those in the far-flung islands. He came for the ends of the world, for God so loved the world. We can see the ministry of Christ being set before us with such beautiful language here in Isaiah chapter 42. He came for people. That's why he came. He didn't come to pour out his wrath upon this world, and that is what this world deserved. He came to be the Savior of the world. This was what he was authorized to do. This was the purpose of his coming, that souls might be rescued. And as we think upon that, are we not taught that if we are indeed the children of God, and if we have the Spirit of Christ within us, then the Spirit of Christ means that we ought to be reaching souls. Before the Lord ascended into glory, in Acts chapter 1 and the verse 8, he said, But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. Ye shall be witnesses unto me. As he defied gravity, and as he went up out of their sight, he left behind this word. They too were authorized to be winners of souls and to spread his message near and far. And that is what we have been authorized to do. And there's no escaping this commission. We are to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He was authorized. But he also was anointed. He had an anointing. In chapter 42, in the verse 1 of Isaiah, we read, I have put my Spirit upon him. He had the Holy Spirit. Now, Christ's relationship with the Holy Spirit was different from our relationship with the Spirit, because he was the perfect man. But yet, as a man, he too was filled with the Spirit. Yes, he was and is the Son of God, and yes, the Logos dwelt within the man Christ Jesus, and the two became the one person. But at the same time, in his humanity, he needed the infilling of the Spirit. But we are told that the Spirit was given to him without measure. And that is where his anointing is different from our anointing, because we could never have the Holy Spirit without measure. These beings of ours would not be able to bear such a thing. The weight of it, the power that it would bring, would be beyond us. We are told that of Christ in him dwelt all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. 
But yet, through him and through his example, we are taught that we too need the fullness of the Spirit. The fullness of the Spirit is an indefinite thing. It's indefinite in the sense that only God knows how much of that fullness we need, how much of that fullness we can have. Only God knows that. And one person will receive another degree of the Spirit's fullness than another person will receive. And the fullness of the Spirit is something that we need each and every day. And it's a blessing that we can lose. But if we are to be useful in this work, we cannot do this work without the Spirit of God. And it is something you should pray for this preacher that I would have the fullness of the Spirit. It's something you need to pray for the preachers that come that they would have the fullness of the Spirit. There's something you should pray for this prayer meeting and this week of prayer that as we would seek God, that the fullness of the Spirit would be poured out upon us for prayer and that we might have the fullness of the Spirit for witnessing and for soul winning. This is a very important subject because it teaches us that we cannot do the work of soul winning by ourselves in our own strength and our own energy. We need the Holy Spirit to be soul winners. Dr. Stephen Alford, he spoke about how he felt burdened with this work of soul winning. He felt he was so ineffective. He felt he was so inefficient. He felt himself to be a failure. He wasn't winning souls for the Lord. And he was struggling with this. How could he be a soul winner? And then he he heard a story that was told him about the very famous writer Oswald Chambers. And Oswald Chambers was noted for his deep devotion and piety and godliness. And he was out walking with a Scottish minister. And as he went out walking with this Scottish minister, Oswald Chambers was full of enthusiasm. And they met a shepherd coming the other way. And as soon as the shepherd came, Oswald Chambers went up to him and started to speak to him and started to give him God's Word and give him the gospel and told him about his need of Christ. And then as they went away, the minister he was with, uh, an older, more experienced man, he said, did the Holy Spirit give you permission to speak to that shepherd? in that way. And it deeply humbled Oswald Chambers, and it taught Stephen Alford a lesson too, because this work of soul winning is not about us. It's about the Lord moving in our hearts and our souls. You see, we cannot possibly go to every person we meet and just bring the gospel to them where they're at. You can't do such a thing. Uh, you, you know, you're, you're going to a place of work, you're paid for working there, not for opening your Bible and talking to those people. God will give you opportunities in His own way and in His own time, and we need the Spirit to prompt us and to lead us to people and to guide us to people. And the problem is that if we try and do this work in our own energy and in our own labor, we end up getting it wrong, saying the wrong thing at the wrong time. I can remember, and it was a lesson that, that I learned through something that someone else did to me as a young person. 
Uh, there was this dear old lady who was noted for going out in the streets, giving out tracts, very zealous, very sincere, giving out tracts to whoever she met, seeking to talk to people. And myself and a friend, we were in the Long Commons in Coleraine one evening, and we were talking, and this lady comes along, and she reached me a track, and she said, did you know you're going to hell? I said, I'm not, for I'm saved. Now, that wasn't a word that she brought in the Spirit of God. We can be sure of that. And where God's work is concerned, being led by the Spirit is so, so important. It's so vital to know that we're led by the Spirit in the things that we say, in the people that we talk to, in the tone of our voice. Being led by the Spirit is so vital. We do more good on our knees seeking God's guidance than we will ever do if we stumble and falter and fail to say the right thing at the wrong time. We need to be so careful. And when we think of the Apostle Paul, we are told that he, he went to do God's work in a certain place and the Spirit stopped him. It wasn't even God's plan for Paul to preach the gospel in every place. It wasn't. He had to go where the Lord led him to. And we need to pray that over the course of this mission that God will lead us to people who will be ready to receive the word of God. We need to be under the control of God's spirit. When we give out that invitation that if it's just a matter of handing over the invitation, just a wee mission, would you like to come? But maybe there's somebody else and they'll be ready for another word, another question. Let's pray that we would be a people anointed by God for this good work. And then Christ was all also accessible. He was always the accessible Savior. We are told here he would bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. Of course, this was fairly explosive. It was explosive in Isaiah's time. And it was explosive when our Lord was upon this earth. A man that had time for the Gentiles. Because the Jews had a name for the Gentiles. They called them dogs. The Gentiles were not allowed beyond the, the great court of the people, the common court of the temple. They, they couldn't go beyond that. They could have been executed if they did so. There was no hope for the Gentiles. That was the Jewish mindset. But Christ was all together different. He had time for all people at all times. We think of how he reached out to that Samaritan woman how he loved that woman, the Syrophoenician woman, how he cared for that woman. But we think of how he, he saw the, the multitudes and how did he see them? How did he see people? What vision did he have for people? We talked a few weeks ago about a vision where there is no vision, the people perish. And, and then Mark 6 and 34, we're told, when he came out, and saw much people, and was moved with compassion toward them, because they were as sheep not having a shepherd. 
and he began to teach them many things. The people weren't a bother to her. The people were there to be taught. And they saw them as sheep without a shepherd. And he was there, accessible, available for those people. And later on in the day, the disciples said, let's send them all away. No, no. They needed to be fed. The Lord, he was there to look after them as well. He gave them absolutely everything that they needed. And let's lift our eyes to those fields that are white under harvest around us. There are so many. They're just like sheep without a shepherd. They don't know what they need, but it's our duty to tell them about the one that can meet all of their needs. And if there's one thing Christ had in all of his accessibility, it was a love for the people. And love is something that moves hearts. And may the Lord give us that Christ-like love. Let's think of the authority of the model soul winner. We have the word judgment here in verse 1. I have put my spirit upon him, and he shall bring forth judgment unto the Gentiles. The word judgment here refers to the truth. Quite often in the Old Testament, God's judgments, they are his law, his determinations, his truth. He would come to bring truth to the Gentiles. You have it again in verse 3, a bruised reed shall he not break, and the smoking flax shall he not quench. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. Judgment unto truth. His interest was truth, presenting truth. And this is the great message of the gospel. It's truth. What is truth? Truth can be such an elusive thing. More elusive today than ever it was, despite the fact that news can be broadcast from one end of the world to the other. We can learn so much about what's happening in different parts of the world, but we can't even be sure about what we see. Films can be created. Artificial intelligence. We can't be sure of anything. Did this person really write this? Did this artist really paint this? Was this picture really taken? Does this person really exist? Did this happen at this point in time? This is such a confusing world. And yet we open this old book that has been around for millennia. It's the Word of God. There's no book like it. It has stood the test of time. It has never been discredited. When men have tried to discredit it, they have been proved to be fraudulent because the book will never be fraudulent. And we need confidence to believe every day that this is the Word of God from Genesis to Revelation. There are no mistakes. There are no inaccuracies. This book does not merely contain God's Word, but it is God's Word, infallible. And it contains the greatest story ever was told that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. What a message it is! An authority with the message, and only the church of Christ has this message. And we are told by Paul as he encouraged Timothy, the word of the Lord is not bound. You can't tie the word of God. You can kill its messengers. You can imprison them. You can destroy God's people. You can murder them. But you'll never destroy the book. The power of the word. 
Then we have the attitude of the model soul winner. These are great phrases in verse 3. A bruised reed shall he not break, and smoking flax shall he not quench. These are words that articulate His gracious Spirit, the grace of Christ. Here is a life that is bruised, just like the reed that's bruised and ready to be broken. But the Lord doesn't break that bruised reed. Here is a life that's just like the smoking flags. Once it burned, but now it's just smoking. But he doesn't quench that smoking flags. He is there to restore. He is there to heal. He is there to cure the brokenness. He is there to bring peace. Here is a life that is bruised because of sin. Life that's ruined and warped by sin is there hope for that life. Yes, there is, because there's no one loves the sinner like Jesus. He is there to encourage. He is there to bring life where it seems that there's nothing but death. That is how the Lord has dealt with us, is it not? If the Lord had have come to give us what we deserve, we would certainly not be in a gospel meeting tonight. In fact, if we had all that we deserve, we'd be lost forever. But no, he was kind, he was gracious. He gave us opportunities to repent. He was long-suffering. The goodness of Christ, the goodness of Christ. Perhaps you wonder tonight, can the Lord use you? Perhaps you have had a sense of your own failings, of your own sinfulness. Perhaps you've been convicted. Yes, the Lord can use you. He loves His people. He cares for sinners. And we need something of that Spirit upon us as we go out and invite and bring invitations and pray that God would use us. We need the attitude of the blessed Savior, the gentle Spirit, the patient Spirit, Oh, we need patience. We need a lot of patience. We need patience for soul winning. You'll get rebuffed. You'll get rejected. There are people you'll invite and they won't come in. You might wonder, will I ever reach that person? And that's the way it is. But we keep trying. We keep persevering. And we pray that God would do the work. The great apostle Paul preached at Athens. He saw very little done there. In fact, he got more rejections than he did conversions, and yet there were some that believed. But he got a hard time at Athens. That's how it is. It happens everywhere. Whenever Wesley went out preaching, we're not to think that because some of these men lived in days of revival that souls were constantly being saved. There were times when there were riots, and he was stoned, and all kinds of things happened. It was often said in, in those days in Britain that it was a, quite a lawless age compared with the age in which we live in today. Whenever preachers went out, there had to be the right men to preach, men who could work the crowd, men who could say the right words, men who would not shrink away whenever the opposition came, who would stand firm and tall and bring the word. And there were occasions the wrong men tried it, and it was just a disaster because they weren't men led by the the Spirit of God. 
There were tough days, but the word went out. And these are tough days that we live in. And may God give us this spirit that our Savior had. This belief in the message. The power of the message. Let's also think of the assistance. You look there at the verse 6 and look what it says. I, the Lord, have called thee in righteousness and will hold thine hand and will keep thee and give thee for a covenant of the people for a light of the Gentiles. I will hold your hand. The assistance. The Savior of men had that assistance. And we will have that assistance too. God calls you to do something. God leads you to do something. God leads you to speak to someone. Go and do it. Trust the Lord for his guidance. And the Lord will never fail his people. We talked this morning about the need just to ask the Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And I said, if you pray that prayer honestly, God will show you. And when God shows you, go forward and he will hold your hand. And the promise is there for you. Let's think about the achievement. Look at verse 7. To open the blind eyes, to bring out the prisoners from the prison and them that sit in darkness out of, out of the prison house. Wherever Christ went, amazing and incredible things happened. He was just from a poor home in Galilee. There was nothing notable about him as far as the world was concerned, but whenever he spoke, people were talking. Whatever he did, people were moved. In Matthew chapter 11 and the verse 3, we are told that the disciples of John, that they were sent from John in prison to ask of Christ, Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? Jesus answered and said unto him, Go and show John again those things which ye do hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor of the gospel preach to them. And blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. What a response. This is what Christ was doing. Over these past weeks in our prayer meetings, we have been examining the subject of revival. We looked at it from Isaiah, and we also looked at it from the book of Ezekiel as well. And I have been thinking much on the subject of revival over these past weeks. And we do refer constantly to the 1859 revival in Ulster because of that mighty work that was done in those days here in our native land. In so many ways, we are the children of 59 because if God had not worked in 59, it's doubtful whether we would be here today in a gospel-preaching church. Seeds were sown in those days. But I was greatly struck by this book that I was reading on the 1859 revival, and this writer was saying, the work didn't happen without any warning that it was coming, or without a promise that it was coming. It, it, it wasn't a work that arose out of nothing. God had prepared the way for that revival for decades. He talks about the early years of the 19th century, 
perhaps 15, 20 localized revivals all across Ulster. God working in this community, working in that community. Talks about the 1844 State of Religion report from the General Assembly of the, the Presbyterian Church, a report that was targeted towards the elders and the ministers, and it shows what a desire and thirst there was for revival in those days. That report urged the elders and the ministers to directly tend, to attend to their duties, give more attention to them, to catechize the people, to employ every means within their power to call forth into active exercise the gifts and graces of all members of their churches, and that they hold frequent meetings for prayer, deliberating thereupon. They were encouraged to establish more prayer meetings in the congregation, that the people would be exhorted to wrestle before God in prayer. That was more than 10 years, 15 years before the great revival. The elders and ministers were encouraged to take the work of revival seriously upon their hearts. And then we read of an increase in prayer from congregation to congregation. There was more prayer. There was more people seeking after God, more people calling upon God. There was a thirst for God to come, for God to work. And then there came a challenge, a challenge that came from the Reverend G. H. Murr of, of the Presbyterian Church in Connor and County Antrim, and he addressed a young man, an earnest Christian, do something more for God. Could you not gather at least six of your careless neighbors, either parents or children, to your own house or to some other convenient place on the Sabbath and spend an hour with them, reading and searching the Word of God? And that young man started a Sunday school in 18. 55. And then there were the four other young men who started the prayer meeting in the schoolhouse in Kells. And that prayer meeting, which began in 1857, became the birthplace of the 1859 revival. God was moving in hearts, hearts that were earnest, hearts that wanted to win souls, hearts that wanted to see God's power being poured out, hearts that were praying as Saul prayed, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And God did an amazing thing in the midst of all of that. 100,000 souls were saved. Two Presbyterian ministers were sent to America to find out about the 1858 revival in America. One of them was William Gibson, who would later write a book about the Ulster revival called The Year of Grace. They brought such a report back. The people wanted God to do that in Ulster. And the fire of God came down, and souls were swept into the kingdom. This is what God can do. This is not some kind of legend. These are documented stories of how God came, of how He closed public houses, of how He made courts virtually redundant, of how the police had nothing to do, of how He calmed society, of how it was all reported on by the secular press, what was going on in the churches. And it was nothing of man. It was all of grace. It was all of God. May the Lord give us this spirit, this Christ-like spirit, to seek His blessing 
because this is what we need, our neighborhood needs, and our nation needs. This is what our world needs. And if you're not saved tonight, this gospel is what you need, because this alone will give you the hope of eternal life. For as I said at the beginning, the value of your soul is so, so precious. Let's bow for prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for the Word of God. We thank you for our blessed Savior. Help us to grow to be like Him. He gave His life for us. Oh, that we would give our lives for others and use this life for your glory before the candle goes out. For Christ's sake.